This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. People want to pretend that it's 2020 again, and uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, we do have a really special treat uh, tonight. One of our, our colleagues from an emerging branch of Libri in southern Brazil is going to be speaking with us tonight. And I'll say your first name, but would you maybe uh, help us pronounce your, your last name? Ben and I pronounce it very, very differently. Um, <laughs> so either one of us is right, uh, or maybe we're both wrong. I don't know. But uh, this is Josue. Heyshoff. Heyshoff. So Ben was right. Um, <laughs> you're a, if you're a betting person, you probably should usually bet with Ben. Uh, ben with me. But yeah, um, Josue and his wife Lily were uh, at were workers at the English Libri for six years. Is that right? Or seven years? Yes, that's right. And we were there seven, but worker six, yeah. Yeah, and they had their uh, their first child, Benja, uh, there. But they've been back in Brazil, starting southern Brazil. Uh, starting up a new work. Uh, but Josue, uh, is also, uh, sort of distinguished among, uh, current Libri workers because he's a published author. So and we have, uh, one of, uh, one of his books, his only book in English, right? There is another one in Portuguese. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is on, um, speaking of, of names that maybe are hard to pronounce, uh, the book is called Reform Your Mind, The Christian Philosophy of Herman Deweyverd. Did I say Deweyverd right? You know, that, that, that sounds good to me, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have that here, and uh, just waste spent a lot of time uh, thinking with him and about him and writing about him. But yeah, tonight, uh, as you can all read the title, he's going to be lecturing to us on Chasing Goodness, the inter- uh, Integration Between Subjectivity and Objectivity. And so I'm just going to turn it over to you, Josue, and... After you're done, um, we'll, we'll just have people, uh, if you have a question, I'm going to go ahead and mute our mic now, but when it's question time, come up and then look at Josue so we can see you. <laughs> um, what's that? Yeah, and, um, and, and bring your, your question up that way. So, but I'll just turn it over to you. Great. Yeah, thank you very much, Joshua, and thanks, guys, for hosting me i wish i'll be there maybe one day uh this is one of the things uh lily and i have been talking about we'd love to visit america because it feels like after all this uh seven years in the uk we've met so many americans we have so many american friends it feels strange knowing so many people from a country that you've never been to <laughs> that's a strange thing so we would love to uh, very shortly be able to to go there uh, but yeah, I, I'm bringing this theme together tonight and sharing with you uh, some of the ideas, some of the sessions and the parts of this talk. They, they are things I've been chewing on and thinking about for a while. 
And uh, but but this this is the first time I'm sharing this particular lecture when um, those guys invited me to share something. I initially I thought, oh, maybe I just take a lecture that I've done before, but I saw it as a chance in the midst of busy life here to prepare something uh, new and fresher and trying to articulate things. So in a sense, even though there are things that I've been thinking about for a while, but uh, I think the bulk of the the, 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 the ideas and the, the core of the ideas that I'm sharing with you, they are an ongoing project. So I, I, I really mean it that I would love to hear your responses, whether these things, they make sense, they resonate with you, and if they, they speak into what you, you've been thinking and the way uh, things are uh, progressing in our society. So, yeah, I, I look forward for the discussion time as well, as this, it is a, an ongoing uh, project. Um, let me try to the next slide, see how, how I do it. Uh, there we go. Can, can you see the next slide? Yes. Can you just do it? Yeah, okay. One hand up. So I, I know it's a bit unfair. We're not interacting live, but, uh, can, can you guess? Do you know where, uh, the, what, what is this, this, uh, picture is referring to? Which Bible passage is, is that referring to? Any guesses? Sorry. I know you're mute. So that's not very practical, but any, any guesses there? Maybe Joshua can help. Uh, Kate unmuted it. So, um, any guesses? Jesus healing a lame man was guessed. Okay. Uh, this is, this refers to, sorry, this isn't a fair question, just throwing it there, but this is, um, uh, the, the young rich man, the young rich ruler, which I will, uh, start this talk by just reading the passage, won't say much about it, but it will be very important. And in fact, I would say that uh, even in my let's say sociological philosophical thinking this this passage has 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 um yeah a lot of impact over the over the years i've been thinking a lot about this passage so just read part of it and just for for us to start keep that in mind we'll return to it in the end of the lecture so if you see that picture again you know it's coming to an end and i watch the uh, the, the 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 clock here as well for for the time not go over 45 minutes or 50 minutes let's see how it goes so let me just read it uh, briefly. I think this is the NIV version. So Mark 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So keep that in mind as we as we go through this lecture. But I would like to frame and to really introduce this topic by by sharing with you three stories, three things, experiences that happened to me <laughs> and see if you if you have any is there's a, there any resonance there with with you. But um I remember uh the first time as an exchange student 
uh, when I went to, um, to Paris on, I was for a different reason, not to do with Labrie, but I was living in England for, for a year, for a sort of gap year. Um, um, this is how I met Lily, by the way. And we already dating. And one summer we decided to go backpacking around, uh, Europe. And in the final part of our trip, we went to Paris and I decided to book a kind of fancy restaurant for us to enjoy that evening. And, uh, I went there and for the first time in my life, I encountered the experience of a waiter serving you a little bit of wine and just waiting. I had no idea what, what that meant. I was there, sit, sat, sat, we were there, sat on this, uh, kind of fancy restaurant outside the beautiful Parisian, uh, evening. And this waiter comes with a little bit of, with, with a, a bottle of wine and serves me a little bit on the glass and just looks at me. And I had no clue what that meant. And after a while, he had to explain me that he was actually waiting for me to taste the wine and tell him whether I approve it or not. And so I did it. I, I, I drank a little bit, a sip of wine and I, I don't even remember the taste. I didn't know whether it was good or not. I just said, what, what do I say now? Yes. And then I said, yes. And then we enjoyed that wine. Um, was the wine really good? Uh, was this just merely a social convention? What was going on there? Is this ritual something that, uh, actually means something that points out to reality, to some sort of objective fact that people really say no to particular wines? Or is that just something snobbery that some sort of well-developed society societies have created to differentiate themselves? One could ask the question from several different angles. We just throw that question there for you to think about, right? At least I came to, to ask that question much later. The second example is um, when um, the experience of people and friends of yours, I, I know that you must have had that experience, when you know that a friend of yours has been to the movies and watched the latest film. And uh, I remember asking a friend, so normally when you ask a friend, so is, is that film good? Was, that, was the film good? Was the movie good? And generally people say yes or no. And say they say, no, it wasn't good. Normally you ask, the follow-up question is why? And normally the question, the answer you get back from that question is because I, did, I didn't like it, right? So there seems to be an in, incapacity that to differentiate the things that we like, the subject, from the objectivity of things, was the film good? I never met, well, perhaps one or a couple of people, but I cannot recollect, if I'm honest with you, that ever answered that question by saying, well, the film um, was great, but I didn't like it. Or the film was really, really bad, but I enjoy it so much. And why is that the case? So this is part of the question. How do we deal with things that concern the subject, subjectivity. The other word for that would be personal. I'm using sub subject, subjectivity, because it's this more current language, at least within the philosophical, the, the human sciences. Um, another example uh, is from, you could, could cite 
lots of examples, but be from the world of food, or if you think about coffee, <laughs> for instance, um, is there any difference? And I know the coffee lovers amongst yourselves, like myself, would say, yes, this is a completely objective reality. What do you mean? <laughs> but my question is, can someone that has never tasted, um, let's arguably very good coffee, can someone that never tasted really know the difference? Or could apply that to wine, for example. Can you really, if you, if you, if you never drunk a glass of wine, can you differentiate from a, a, a five dollar bottle of wine from a, a ten thousand dollar bottle of wine? What is the role of subjectivity of things that concern our own experience? And what about objectivity? And where is reality there? So these are my questions, so to speak. And I'm, I, I, another thing that I would like to, to, to introduce there for us to take it later is that um, the famous British philosopher of the 19th century, Bertram Russell, it is said at least that in his deathbed, he was asked the question, what if when you die, you find that there is a God? What question would you ask him? And after a while, Russell supposedly responded by saying, well, I would ask him, why didn't you give me more evidence? Why didn't you give me more evidence? In other words, why didn't you give me more um, ob objective things or objectivity so I could see? We'll go back to Russell in the end of this talk, and I hope to make the case for 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 a sort of integration between subjectivity and objectivity, as the title uh, tells you. But before I go on to, to the thesis of this lecture, really, I just want to explore some of some possibilities, and I would say the two extremes. One of them would reject the world as objective and say that primarily and fundamentally uh, the world that we live in is formed, is forged by the subject. So a subjective, subjectivist perspective of reality, so to speak. And then we'll say a few things about, uh, or the, the other pole, um, what I'm calling here objectivism. And then I will go on to a sort of defense and trying to even ground that in, in, in the biblical story in terms of the integration of the, the two, uh, the, the two dimensions of reality, the reality be formed by these two dimensions. But anyway, let's just briefly go through uh, these two uh, extremes. So the first one says that everything that we experience and every aspect of reality or the most central aspects of reality, they concern the subject. Uh, in a sense, uh, we, we even seen that the struggle in the so-called postmodern or hypermodern world of the eclipse of the external world. Or what I'm calling here the, the implosion of the outside inside is it, it, to an, an extreme of, of this uh, perspective would be a form of what in philosophy it's called solipsism. This idea that the external reality is but a projection of my own self. So is that in the extreme form of subjectivism, people would really go mad in the sense asking the question, is there any reality outside of myself? Or is uh, is there any uh, objective 
reality or or is everything a projection of my own subjectivity of my own mind of my own feeling so in that sense is is everything a dream or in a sense is some forms of narcissism will take take that shape as well in the sense that i am the main protagonist of this theater that's taking place and everyone else is um is a supporting role so to speak actor and actress in my own drama i am the center of everything so that will be an extreme form of subjectivism that epistemological question is there any reality beyond myself beyond my subject and for some people that that will be very hard if for some of us that would sound like wow how can anybody ask that question but i i i'm meeting more and more uh, people that are actually struggling with that is there anything outside of myself or everything is just the way i experience reality uh this is certainly connected to what uh, the brilliant canadian philosopher charles taylor um in, in his book ethics of authenticity calls this ideal of authenticity this idea that he really identifies a shift in the idea of what it means to be authentic in our day and age instead of authenticity referring to something that is outside of yourself as a reference point to your behavior to your to your act in fact there is an inward turn so to be authentic for the subjectivists means to be coherent with the way you feel internally so you become i become my own reference point and i am truly authentic when i am true to myself so this is a form of subjectivism do you see what i mean in the sense that i to be authentic is to be able to express what is inside not to conform to any reality that's outside in fact for for the subjectivist caught in this idea of authenticity everything that goes against that sort of expression of the self would be perceived as something that goes against my freedom so freedom would be connect connected exclusively with this self expression anything that goes against or tells me that my self expression is not correct would be perceived as an attempt against personal freedom but this in a way that i'm arguing here is a form of subjectivism uh, taking place the other um a dimension or the other field so to speak that we see that sort of thing expressed uh, is is in the social sciences and i i speak as as a sociologist as well this idea that reality and we hear that all the time reality is socially constructed and uh and i'll make my point later on that on and spoil too much the, the what I'm, i'm 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 arguing for here but we hear that this is a very common language i don't i don't know if there's anybody from the human sciences there in the room but this is not only true of sociologists but anthropologists historians and all all the people working especially within the human sciences but not only beyond the human sciences as well this idea and people mean what they mean when they say that reality is socially constructed a lot of people mean not all but a lot of most people mean that uh, that there isn't things that are objective actually things are socially constructed which means that they are constructed by subjects and they become 
for a process that they call it a naturalization process that people take realities that are socially constructed as if they were objective realities. So the whole project of deconstruction within the, the social sciences uh, has its foundation this, in this idea that things can be deconstructed because in the first place they were socially constructed. Therefore, they can be dismantled because things are just they are malleable, they are flexible, they don't have a really, a, a real ground outside of, of the subject, in a sense. The subject really makes the world. And uh, in fact, for, for some sociologists, and I would say the mainstream sociologist, sees the world as socially fabricated. So reality is social reality, because that is the main dimension that builds up. And we could talk uh, for a lot of time and can go back to, to the social sciences and different authors that would work on that stream, that stream of thought. So this would be the, the expression within the social sciences, but not only the social sciences. We could go on. And this is connected pretty much with the social sciences and, and, and philosophy. And I, if you are interested in the Frankfurt School and critical theory, uh, there's lots of good things out there. I know that uh, Clark and Canadian Labrie has done something uh, on this topic. I've done something as well, which is online on critical theory and how to think about that from a Christian perspective. But I think it's the same foundation. Obviously, that there is specificities in the way critical theory works. And I know this is a very sensitive topic for America, especially. And we don't have time to explore. This is not the, the main aim of, of this this evening. But uh, the whole project of critical theory is also founded in this idea that the world and reality and the structures, they, they are socially constructed, right? And you can really deconstruct them because they don't have a foundation that will be too strong to resist uh, social change or cultural change in a sense. Uh, and then you, that, that is a spread to every single area. You see, for example, later on the post-structuralists especially from the French tradition, Michel Foucault, which is all over the place. This idea that uh, um, language, for example, in Derrida, language is, is but a, a power game. So everything is power. This is the main thing of critical theory. They assume that thing. It's not whether or not some sort of social structure has a power dynamic. It's just a matter of finding where it is. So there's this idea that everything is, is this, this, this power struggle. And so, so, so language as well. When people use language, use concepts, the way they talk, they are actually, um, uh, actually in this, in this, uh, power play of words and trying to, to oppress, to use things to control other people. So you have to unveil, unmask these things, you know, to reveal where the power, power is. But I think ultimately there is not, not everything that's produced obviously by the Frankfurt School and critical theories in that stream, but you see that, uh, that this idea of the subject very much present and informing philosophically, if you like, everything that is done in terms of theory, right? Another field that one could think about is the field of art, right? So um, if everything is socially constructed, one could ask the question, is there such thing as, I don't know, true beauty, for example, or is there a true object of art or what is art after all? So some people become more cynical in a sense, saying, well, art is just a reflection of a given social structure. 
So art is just the, this hobby of this social class. And art is just the articulation of a particular social language given and constructed by subjects to express something. But there's no real objectivity. Art is merely the subject expressing itself to other subjects that understand that language. But if language is not founded anywhere, grounded anywhere, it's basically something that can be changed. It's, it's, again, it's malleable, it's flexible, it's plastic, if you like, in the sense of plasticity. So um, for many uh, uh, people working within the field of arts and, and, and beyond, art becomes what people call an epiphenomenon, which means it's just a derivation of another field. And for most people, for example, is that derivation is an epiphenomenon of the social dimension or for the more, more cynical ones from the economical uh, dimension. So economics, they really shape what art is. Right. So this is based on, again, a subjective perception because you are denying the existence of any objectivity in reality. And the subjectivity is built on something that we're not quite sure what it is. Right. Does that make sense up to this point? Can I can you just put the thumbs up or great? OK, I'll, I'll move on. I'll move on. It's very hard not to be able to read your, your expression, your faces. But let, let's move on. So if sub subjectivism is one pole of this extreme, right? The other pole of this extreme is objectivism, right? Is the belief that everything that there is is really the world outside or a world as a total external reality, right? Or if you like an impersonal world. And, 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 and the funny thing about, um, this, uh, ob about objectivism and subjectivism. And I do believe that they, in the end, they kind of meet in the same point. Because for the, the extreme objectivist, take a person, for example, that defends that the world is purely objective and the subjectivity, myself, the person, what is unique of the self doesn't really matter, for example. In the end of the day, this person will confuse um reality with their own experience in the same way that the subjectivist confuses reality with their own experience for the objectivist the extreme objectivist it is as if reality is my experience whereas for for the subjectivist my experience is reality at least in the subjectivist there's an awareness of the, the my own self that I have a subjectivity and I have a, my own perspective. For the objectivist, there is a confusion. There's an incapacity, I would say, of, of, of this lack of self-awareness. It is my own experience becomes the thing, the, the way things function. So it's the incapacity of doubting my own self. <laughs> In a sense, this is a, a even if you say it's an um, inability to read your own emotions and inability to negotiate your experience in the world. So this is why it's so hard to have an, uh, an argument or with, with a total objectivist because they don't doubt their own experience. They take the way they feel as if it was reality. Strangely, in the same way that the subjectivist does. Does that make sense? 
because you don't have the capacity to say, say if you're talking to someone and you, you're trying to explain yourself, you, you have that moment that the person says something that uh, makes you doubt your, your own experience. You say, well, I, I, I felt that you said that, but now that you're explaining certainly is different. So you question yourself and you say, you might say that, well, I'm perhaps I felt that way because this things, this thing here remind me of a different thing. Do you see what I mean? So it's very psychological. And then, then you are able to hold, hold back and say, well, yes, I, I am biased because I, I am a subject. But for, for the total objectivist, that there is no self-awareness. So everything that is experienced is, it is as if this is how things work. So this is very difficult to argue, to interact with a total objectivist in that sense. But the, but objectivism is, if, if, in a sense, if subjectivism is the world, in very simplistic terms here, is the world of post-modernity, of post-truth, um, objectivism is the world of hard modernity, is the world of control, of, of neutral rationality, of production, of scientificism. So everything must be governed by this impersonal laws, the laws of the market or laws of production and the laws of science. So this, this belief that everything uh, is pretty much like the Newtonian um, clock that works perfectly within each function and the subject doesn't really impact or doesn't really shape, doesn't really matter in a sense. Uh, the core of modernity, for example, is this idea, if you take that to the realm of politics, that you go to the public square and you leave your prejudices, you leave your, your religious beliefs, your moral beliefs behind. You leave, in a sense, your subjectivity at home and you go to the public square with the, the, the neutrality of rationality. So you just use rational, objective terms to talk about things as if you can do that, as if you can strip yourself of your subjectivity and go to the public debate, public square, and, and, and use the neutral language of rationality, of, of science to talk about things only. So this is the belief of the modern, the, the belief of, of progress through modernity, science, and neutral rationality, right? Uh, another thing that um, I'm identifying here is that we see growing more and more this, what I'm calling here, this idolatry of data. Uh, well, you can already see that. Obviously, this is more uh, crystallized in the, um, in, in the world of technology. So if you think, for example, the whole movement of transhumanism, we don't have time here to explore, but read Harari, Yuval's Harari Homo Deus is all about that. He opens up saying that, that he believes in the religion of data, which he calls dataism. So in doing so, he criticizes both Christianity and in the Enlightenment. And he proposed this idea that we, we need to believe in the algorithms. The algorithms are the new God, the new deities of our time, because they are truly objective and they can really tell what's going on. And I'm seeing that trade more, more growing, this idea that we have to do things based on facts. So where's the data for that? Journalism is, is, is going that trend. If you think about education, is also going that same, same route of basing education on data. So assessing teachers, assessing students, the idea of personalized data. So you create a database of that student and you see all the graphics and things and you assess based on facts. Um, and 
I would say there there's value in certain certain again in, in data and, and interacting with them, but it, also there's a danger as if data and information itself was self-explanatory or self-evident. Pretty much in the same way that Bertrand Russell would ask God, why didn't you give me more evidence? If I had more data, I would believe. And I'm challenging that idea, asking, is that so? Is that true? That we, if we have data, we know what's going on. If we have information, things are self-evident? I doubt it. But I, I, I look forward to hearing you. But we, just open your eyes. You see that sort of language creeping everywhere, even in sports. So this idea of data analysis. I, I, I'm, I'm, I was, I, I had been a, a huge fan of football, sort of soccer, as it's called there in America. But I'm more, I, I'm not following that much now in Brazil. But as a living up to the standards of Brazilians, I, I like soccer. And I, in a sense, when I watch this, this, this television uh, programs, it's, it's becoming more and more about data. The whole thing about uh, who did that and how, how, how long they run and how fast they, they run during the, the, the match. It's very interesting. That sort of analysis shifting to some sort of more su- subjective pers- perspective to a very objectivist way of seeing even sport. But we can discuss that further as, as, as we progress. So, in fact, we have these two poles, subjectivism and objectivism. And now I'll go to the third, uh, second part uh, of, of this talk, which is actually a defense. And, and in fact, I, I even would say from a Christian perspective of this idea that the world is both objective and subjectivist. And, and, and we should um, see the world as as and our experience as the integration of subjectivity and objectivity. So this is a question that I've been asking myself. What does it mean to be a subject within the created order? Or I could rephrase it by saying, what does it mean to be a subject within an objective world? And I don't think this is a contradiction. In fact, I do believe that's the way God, the creator, ordered his creation. We are subjects. We are persons within a world that is structured and objective. But that what is objective in the world is uh, it's not totally in contradiction with the subject. And what is subjective in the world is not completely in contradiction with the objectivity. Obviously, we're not exploring here. There are many tensions and contradictions in, in reality because of sin and the fall. But that's different from talking about creation and the created order. We won't have time to explore this dimension of how the fall affects that in this talk. But I'm just saying it in case we're thinking about it. But just briefly read with me uh, the, the Genesis account. I know there's much to talk about here, but very briefly from Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And this I want to highlight now. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild, 
wild animals. We don't have time here to do the whole exegesis and hermeneutics of this text and Genesis, but I've been thinking for years now about this idea of naming. And the idea, which is just, it's very surprising that it's not that God asked Adam to name the animals and would correct him in the end of the day, say, well, actually, you named that one this, but I, I believe that other name would be better. He actually says, whatever he called it, that was its name. And this is very, very important. And in fact, the naming, some people even would call it a cultural mandate. <laughs> the, the act of naming continues up to this day, right? We didn't stop naming the animals. I don't know if there are any biologists or ecologists there amongst yourselves, but bio, that's what biology does up to this day. There, there are hundreds of species that are named every year. And this is just an example that I gave you. This is not, not very recent, I'm afraid, but 2009, if I'm not mistaken, it uh, was uh, found off the coast of Indonesia and was named the psychedelic frogfish. Because apparently it's the only fish that doesn't swim but hops. And it's very interesting that the scientists named it, just like Adam named the animals. And once a name is given by subjects, it becomes also an objective reality. Because says every single scientist that will later on interact with this new species that was found out will have to use that name. Even if they want to change that name, I doubt that they will do that very frequently to not confuse the scientific uh, studies. But if they do, they have to refer. Well, once there was a name called psychedelic frogfish and now is then. But normally they would refer to that name and see that they, they give a name that's unique, is a creation, but is also a description of reality. Because a frog is an animal that is already named. It hops. So they, they connect that characteristic to this particular fish with a frog. So you see what's going on here? So it's the human creativity giving it its name. And I'm arguing here that that's the way the Lord, God, the Creator, created us. We are his image. We are co-creators. And we have the attribution that comes from him to keep creating. So this, the objective world is formed, in a sense, by the subjective world. Not only, but is an interaction, an interplay between the sub subjective and the objective. Or think about... We could think about naming in different areas, but think about the historical and political aspects, right? Uh, is a historical event something objective or sub subjective? I would say both. History is always changing. In what sense? Well, events that happen in the past, they don't change. They are objective things that took place in the past. But we are always reinterpreting them in the light of new information or new ideas that we have. Think about the French Revolution, for example, that, that, that is, this picture is referring to. 
Was that a great advancement for humanity and human rights and progress? Or a very, um, uh, a very difficult time in, in history or tradition was overthrown and, and things were reinterpreted? Well, it depends where you stand. It depends on your worldview. It depends on your sub subject. So both uh, pe two people can look at exactly the same objective thing and interpret them completely different. Think about your situation politically, and I speak because the situation in Brazil is very messy as well. Think about the political, the last political uh, uh, election campaign. You have two people looking at the same facts, interpreting them completely different. Two different subjects looking at the same objective thing. But the fact is that the names that we give to things, they really matter. This is why, for example, that, uh, that, that when the, 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 when the French Revolution took place, in order to, to try to erase from, from that society's imagination, uh, the influence of Christianity, what they did was actually rename the days of the week. In fact, they, instead of seven, they, I think they had ten days of the week, which they gave after, I think, Roman, uh, deities and gods. And the idea was to abolish Sunday, so people would forget that they have to go to church on Sunday. The same thing they did with the months of the year. So 12, they have 14, and they renamed them. Obviously, that didn't work. But the idea was to rename, so that would reshape the objective world. And my, my, my thesis here is that it does. Naming shapes the world. We could go on and on and bring in a psychological dimension here. Think about the different names that are given by a psychiatrist or a psychologist, right? In a sense, you could argue there are names, but they are really important names. Some of the names we use today to categorize some pathologies, even calling them pathologies, they were not present a hundred years ago. Well, some that they were, they are not anymore. Why is that? Well, perhaps some things changed objectively, but I would argue things have changed subjectively. And they impact, for example, if you read a DSM, the ma manual that psychiatrists, psychologists use to base the, what, what sort of uh, names they would call what's going on, they change all the time. There isn't even a question among psychiatrists, and especially Christian psychiatrists, are, not, are we not going too far in terms of naming everything as a pathology? These things matter. And we could even go and talk about the theological. And this is, to me, this is the most powerful example. And the Bible tells us so that it is, in a sense, possible to call God what is not God. And this is the most powerful renaming of all. And we call it idolatry. And it's not just that we rename our God and nothing happens just because this is a false God. No, if you read Psalm 115, you read that those who worship the idols will become like them. So there is a powerful thing in going after what we name subjectively. Subjectivity matters in how we name and how we interpret things. They have real consequences and they reshape and shape and form also the objective world. So naming, in a sense, and I don't want to go too 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 far on that the idea of naming, but naming is an act of describing, 
So we interact with what's out there in the objective world that is real and created by, by the Lord, by God. This is the creator order. But also as we name, we are imagining. We're, we're using our imagination to interact with what is outside. So it's not purely objective. It's also subjective. And when something is named, something is prescribed. And when something is prescribed, or if you like, normatized, something is created. And I would argue this is the way the Lord created us. We are co-creators. Wherever we call it, that was its name. Not because uh, this is only an evil thing. It could be under the fall. We could build Babel uh, and create a tower to reach heavens. But we also, from a created perspective, we were created to do it. We are subject in a, a, an objective and created order. So I would say, and this is my point in terms of the integration of the two dimensions, we subjectively construct the world that already exists and transcends us, but in which we actively participate in. And I would say that actively we shape, we form. So is the world socially constructed? Yes and no. So because the world in reality has these two dimensions, we interact with reality with our subjects. But our subject doesn't create reality out of the blue or out of nothing. God did it. And is there is an external reality that goes beyond myself. But I participate in this reality as a person, as a subject. This is what C.S. Lewis in this wonderful book, Surprised by Joy, called his own conversion. He calls it an extroversion, very interestingly. He says his conversion was like as if he was being taken out of himself. Not in order for the self to be completely eclipsed. That wasn't the case at all. I was remembering that uh, very famously, Lewis had this thing that uh, he was not very particularly fond of little children. He was very open to that. But he said that that wasn't a problem with them with or without the outside reality. He said, this is a problem with me. And I acknowledge that problem. So he acknowledged it, the, the external reality. And he acknowledged that the, that external objective reality could be different from his own internal subjective reality. But for him, conversion was being taken out of his own self to engage with what's, with what's outside of himself. Because he acknowledged that he was an extreme subjectivist by the time before his conversion. So, in a sense, I would say that uh, if we acknowledge that perspective, that integration of subjectivity and objectivity, and I will, I'll come to this final point, I'll, I'll, I promise I'm, I'm about to finish with this, this talk, is that uh, if we acknowledge that sort of integration that reality is both objective and subjective, we can get to a point that if someone asks us, what about that film? We might be able to say, well, the film I think was really good, but I didn't like because I'm not prepared to enjoy it yet. I need to grow in my subjectivity in order to engage with it better. 
Do you see what I mean? Or even to say, well, it's not great that that sort of thing, a cultural artifact, but I'm struggling because I still like it. There might be something with me. Just as Lou said, I'm not particularly fond of little children. I know there is something wrong with me that I need to change. But this is not, this is an acknowledgement again of the two poles. Okay. Final, final, final part of this, this talk. I hope you still, I see you with me there. Great, great. Uh, so going deeper into reality, I would say learning to taste goodness. Going back to the, um, to the story of, uh, the young rich man and Burton Russell. Mm. The more I think about this story of the young rich man, uh, the more I reject Russell's question to God. Russell's questions to God, why didn't you give me more answer or more evidence, doesn't make sense to me in the light of the story of the rich young man. Because if you think about it, you, you, you can think about it in these terms. You see this person that we don't know the name, uh, meeting if Jesus was he who he, he, he uh, who he claimed that he was, and if he was what Christianity says he he was, he is the Son of God, the Creator of everything. You could say, in a sense, that the young rich man was in the presence of true light. He was in the presence of true joy. But paradoxically, in the presence of true joy, his experience was, was an experience of sadness. So in the presence of evidence, we actually can be blind to what is in front of our eyes. Self, things are not self-evident. They need to be revealed. Us. And I would say, I don't know, there's something mysterious there in the end of the day, but where is the point that turns the heart of the subject towards true reality? I don't know. I think part of that is the mystery of, of creation. But the fact is that the young rich man saw true light and he was sad. And this is according with the Bible, and the Bible says that... Um, Light came to the world, but man loved darkness instead. And this is what light does. It doesn't convince. It shows where the heart of the subject is. And this can be very painful. And sometimes I ask myself and other people and other Christians, and when we say, if only I would see that miracle, I would believe. Is that true? Well, I, I am more and more coming to doubt that thing. I don't think is even in the, we can actually see that in the biblical story. It's not the presence of miracles that would make people believe. If you read the, this, the history of people, we, uh, the story of people of Israel and, and the aftermath of the Exodus leaving Egypt, it's miracle after miracle after miracle and the supernatural very clear. But they couldn't, couldn't see. They would turn to even to, to 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 false false gods, to idols. So in the same way, 
my question is, what, what, what will I do in the presence of true light? This is why, for example, as well, I think some people say, when Jesus asked the blind man, what do you want me to do to you? Some people say, wow, what a, what a strange question. Of course, he would, he would say, I want to see. Well, I'm not so sure. Because seeing would change his whole life, would reorganize his whole uh, condition, his routine, his liturgies, his his economical life, everything, his identity. So evidence is not a guarantee in that regard. Does that make sense? Meaning, in the end of the day, is relationship, is the capacity to to real to to get things in relationship and this is why i would argue yes of of course there is coffee that is much better than other coffee of course special coffee speciality coffee that is ground uh, uh that is is first of all <clears throat> grown appropriately and 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 harvested well and and dried well and and then uh roasted uh, well and is is brewed in in a manner that extracts its, its flavors, its taste. It's obviously it's there's no even comparison with bad coffee with instant coffee that is not even coffee. However, it is possible for me subjectively to taste that goodness and don't see it because I'm not ready. And I, again, I don't know exactly what, what turns it. And I do believe, obviously, there, there, are, it's not saying that the objective reality is not speaking. It speaks. But me as a subject, I need to hear. I need to understand that, that specialty coffee is much better than Starbucks. Otherwise, I'll get my whole life thinking this is true reality. And I would say created, the created order is meaningful. Everything can be connected and expanded. And I would say the sign of growth in the Christian life is when we grow in our ability to be thankful and to see the relationships of things in the way the Lord created. And in a sense, when it's subjectivity and objectivity are completely integrated. But this is a growth. We learn. We grow and we grow as subjects. And we understand and we even shape the objective world, but we learn how to like things. So I would argue that we shouldn't be stuck in what we like now. We should strive to enjoy to like things better and to like better things. And finally, and I need to expand that, but I think that is the reflection of the Lord's Supper as well. We are called to taste the Lord's goodness and not, not only figuratively and in terms of abstract sense, but we are called into the Lord's Supper to drink the wine and to eat the bread. And see, this is not a purely objective thing that is as, a, as if it was a magical thing. The bread and the wine become magical and they heal me and they get me to the kingdom of God. Remember, if you read in 1 Corinthians, that you shouldn't drink or eat, eat the, the bread in an unworthy manner if you don't discern the bread, the, the body and the blood of Christ. I think that means, you can translate to that topic, <clears throat> that 
the way you in interact with it as a person, as a subject, really matters. So we grow to discern the body and the blood of Christ. And we grow to discern the taste and the goodness of that meal every time we drink and every time we eat from the body of Christ. And I do believe this is the meaning and we are being prepared for the final or the initial, if you like, banquet in the kingdom of God. Because the, the, the scripture clearly tells us that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he started to fast. And he's doing this long fast of wine. And he said he promised that he would drink it fresh with us when he comes in his kingdom. And this will be the best wine that we'll ever have tasted in our entire lives. But I would say that we are being prepared as persons, as subjects, to learn to taste this goodness. And I'll, I'll stop here. Thanks for listening, guys. Yes, wait, thank you. Um, I, I, I could, I'll start maybe with the first question. Um, well, I guess I want to start by saying I'm, I'm sorry to hear you're not watching much football, uh, since coming to Brazil. Um, so hopefully that you can work yeah. on that. Sure, sure. Um, I will, I will. Uh, thank you for being honest before you that. Um, uh, but I, I found myself thinking it was interesting when you talked about subjectivism and objectivism as two poles and you spoke, um, you had a lot of examples of subjectivism uh, and less examples uh, of objectivism. But I found, I found myself thinking about uh, sort of the necessary spiritual practice of reading the Bible and the Bible as sort of an objective part, uh, an, an objective part of reality that we subjectively engage with. And I, I, I mean, maybe I don't totally have a, a question, but would just be curious to see where you're going. I know you sort of went in another direction because there's so many, there's so much, I mean, even on our, our bookshelves here, people who spend their lifetime attempting to become an objectivist uh, about what a historical text means. And they all come up with different uh, or slightly, slightly different uh, understandings of what it is. But then when so many people approach the Bible, uh, they think, well, I don't have, I don't have the original language, the original context. I haven't read the mountains of, of German scholarship or, or whatever. Um, and so then they just kind of like read it quickly without a context. And, you know, I know there's the stereotype of like, you know, throwing a verse up on Instagram, uh, or something like that, but read it in a very, very subjective way. Uh, I'm just curious what, a, what an integration, sort of what you're talking about. Because I see problems on both ends of those <laughs> those, those poles yeah. of approaching part of uh, part of reality. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts. I know it's not exactly where you're like you went. But... Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll say yeah a few things if I understood you, but um, see, see if it makes sense, Joshua. But yeah. Um, well, in a, in a sense, the very um, Obviously, when we use this, we use these categories of subjectivism, objectivism, they are 
they are uh, analytical categories to help us understand what's going on, right? In practice, uh, it is impossible to separate these two, right? Because the way we experience we are in the world, we are, how can, oh, this is a sub subjectivist thing that I did, this is an objective. I mean, these things are completely together uh, all the time in our, in our experience, right? Obviously, sometimes we, we highlight, we, we, we give it more importance or, or we think we're going that, that way. But, uh, so, so concerning the reading, reading the Bible, I mean, in, in a sense, I, I would say that, uh, obviously a more, uh, if you were to use that category of subjectivist reading would be, say, trying to apply every single, um, thing that is going on there to my own personal history, for example, right? Um, say we, we joke here that, uh, that, that sort of perspective gives that sort of sermon that the pastor is talking about, I don't know, uh, people leaving, uh, the Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. So application. So what's the Red Sea the Lord has to open in life? So then I think, so you, you always apply that to, to my personal history. I think in a sense, uh, and we had a, a, a dinner discussion about this the other day. Is that, well, it's not that the Lord and the Holy Spirit cannot use the text to speak to, to a particular situation in my life. And it's not that it is wrong to even use the language metaphorically. Oh, I just crossed the Red Sea. Or people, we use that. Oh, I've been through a desert, right? We use that using the, the biblical language and applying to my personal subjective uh, reality. But uh, I think a wise integration would say, well, yes, for, the, for that moment that happened. But I, I also know that the story of the Exodus is not about myself. It's about people of, of God, Israel, in time, in history, leaving Egypt and going through uh, the, the, the Red Sea and towards the, the promised land. Transcends me. But I also, I, but I, in, in, in ways that, are not reduced to me. I, I participate in that because with the church, for example, I am part of Israel. I'm part of, I'm the new Israel, right? We are all going towards the promised land in a sense. Do you know what I mean? So I participate in that story. Uh, maybe as perhaps a way of putting it, I am not the protagonist, but I'm part of the drama. So uh, to reject subjectivism, doesn't mean that I will reject myself completely. No, I'm part. I'm reading the Bible and, and it speaks to me as a person. But I'm not the central part of the story. Does that make sense, Joshua? So would that, yes, that would be the example yeah, for the you. Bible. That yeah. Great. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Thank you. And anyone else, if you have a question or comment, free to. Hello, uh, thank you for that lecture. My name is Paul, and uh, I live here in the Southboro where Labrie is. And um, I have a, just a question. When you were talking about the term objectivism, my mind went back in time to... Uh, 
I think there was a philosophical movement called objectivism. And I was wondering if this is what anything in connection with what you're talking about. It was started by somebody, an author called Ayn Rand, and it was in the 1960s. Is there any connection there or um, just a coincidence? No, I, I wasn't referring to Rand or, or doing any explicit reference, really. But yeah, I, I think there's some connections, but I, I think I wouldn't be able, Paul, to, to give you more on that because I'm, I, 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 I'm, my understanding of Ayn Rand is very poorly. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, just I can't curious help because, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that exact name is kind of unusual. So, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. I know of her work. Yes. Yes. I, I even got a couple of books, but I, I confess I never read her work. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Paul. Hi, Josue. Hey, Ben. So I have lots of scribbled notes here, and I'm going to try to find my question. Um, so um, I guess it's sort of two parts, and hopefully you'll, you'll, hopefully you'll be able to tell me how they're related. <laughs> so uh, God is the subject, and we're made in his image, so we are subjects in the world. Uh, is does God's perception of reality is is is, is it subjective or is his perception of reality just completely is just reality? Mm-hmm. You know, he sees the truth. He is the source of all truth. He is um, is our experience of objectivity particularly a creaturely perspective? Um, and then, I guess one. I guess. A th- the question I'm trying to get at is um, this idea of integration, and I understand that the, the, the way what you're what you're doing is trying to explain a way in which both can coexist. Um, we have to acknowledge there's a reality outside of our heads, uh, and as Christians, we need to submit to that reality. We can't pretend it's you know we can't make it up. But also, we need to acknowledge that we are. Subjects and we we have a we have a perception you know that's important, um, but in this ideal integration, are we essentially just trying to bring our subjectivity in line with the objective truth? So, in other words, are we just trying to bring? Is there is, is it possible that there may be more than one best kind of wine in heaven? <laughs> right. Is there, yeah. is there one just objective standard? I guess it comes up in a lot in art. You know, like yes, there's some things where you can draw a line about quality. That's just terrible. Even if you enjoy it, it's terrible. That's <laughs> of quality, and I should try to understand it so that I can appreciate it more. But then there is, I feel like, some wiggle room in terms of our, our own perceptions. It's not as if there's one standard of excellence there that if we just could get rid of our subjectivity, we would know it and we appreciate the one. Good wine. Do you know? Do you know what I'm trying to get at there? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, okay. it makes makes a lot of sense. Thanks. I'll start with the second one. I think the the first one is trickier, uh, but this one is very good as well. The second one, and uh, yeah, my point is not that um, there's always a best way in absolutely everything that you have to get into. Um, I think perhaps this is the point where. There's space for diversity and I even there's space for different gifts. 
and even the idea of our human limitation, right? Because in a sense, you could explore everything and, and, and become a connoisseur of every single thing and go crazy because we, we don't have time for that to, to begin with, right? Because you could talk about every kind of food, you can become a specialist in cheese and you can spend literally, I mean, I've met people that your whole life, okay, discerning the kinds of cheese and the, where it was produced in, in the Swiss Alps and kind of this particular kind of uh, goat. And it goes on and on. And wine and coffee and wood and, and music. It, I mean, it would be just paralyzing if you have to enjoy everything at its best quality. And I only sit in this chair that was made it was made with this mahogany wood and it, because they cut, I mean, you could just go, it, it's very paralyzing, right? So, but, but, but in a sense, I think part of the beauty of that band is to, to, to live in community because that's, this is the point where actually that sense of enjoyment of different things can come not only through yourself. And perhaps this is a point of transcending this subjectivist perspective as well. And you can benefit, we can benefit from other people's sense of enjoyment, what they know better than we do and take and, 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 and taste say goodness of things that are really complex by enjoying the things they have to enjoy with their gifts, for example. And I, I would add to that and stop here, but um, this idea that uh, I think the very, the very acknowledgement of uh, this huge complexity and we could go really deep into something that seems very tiny like 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 cheese i mean compare it like cheese or or coffee in the presence of everything that you could explore in reality right it's tiny but it's a it's a it's a world it's a universe in itself but i think knowing that is just just a sense of awe it's just a sense of wow Kind of the, 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 there's there's meaning. Meaning is inexhaustible. I would say that, and this is in it, in itself apologetic. I think that this uh, this very idea. Uh, the first question, yeah, I think if we think about this idea, yeah, uh, if objective reality is just a way that we as finite creatures see things, or I have to think about that question, or or perhaps objective is just the way we try to categorize something that after the fall. <laughs> We, we actually struggle because we think we are the center of reality. So we, we have to use the language, employ the language of objectivity strokes about something that is beyond ourselves. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, I, I, in this way, I, I do prefer perhaps the, even the word person or personality because we are persons in the kingdom of God. And, and in a sense, that, that very idea that truth is not this idea of some Christians got, that's why I'm using the, the, the category of objectivity because some Christians get caught in this idea that truth is uh, objective. And I see what people are getting at, but I would rather use the term truth is personal because in a sense, Christ says, I am the truth and Christ is not this objective fact, external reality, he's a person. So truth, there is in truth, there is this personal dimension do you know what I mean? That transcends the purely objective, kind of impersonal. But yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jessica. Hi, Josue. It's hello, 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 Mary Francis. 
Um, so I'm going to bring this like way down to the ground here. Um, I'm curious. So as you were talking, I appreciate you saying that like we can't, right? We can't extract these things from one another completely. They're always going to be connected. They're always both going to be present. But I'm thinking about how, whether it's just personality and how we come into the world, whether it's the experiences that have shaped us, I can think of different people who can land more extremely on one side of that fence or the other. Um, whether sort of everything gets interpreted through a subjective lens or they lean towards this objective piece of only believing something or moving towards something if they have the data and if they have facts that exist in a particular form. Um, I'm thinking specifically just using Labrie as the context. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about people who've had, I mean, this could be a million things, but I'm thinking specifically experiences in church, right? And so they've had very specific experiences that on the one hand maybe have been very difficult. So there's just a very subjective, like an inability to see past a personal experience that might have been hard or hurtful or damaging. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, people saying, well, no, the church is X, Y, and Z, and everybody knows that, and da 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 and that is just how it is, and that's how we should interact. So um, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on listening to you answer Ben's question. I'm like, maybe community is the answer to my question. Mm-hmm. But sort of what's an antidote to that type of polarized thinking? And are there like a, are there questions perhaps that we could ask ourselves or ask one another to help pull us out of off one side of the the fence or the other, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it makes sense. And um, yeah, something I, I don't know if I will exactly address your your question, Mary Francis, but I think something that comes to my mind, and even using the example of Labrie, my own personal life, and as I kind of following with alongside walking alongside people and and seeing that watching their struggles and the questions and when 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 they would come to terms with things right um i mean very diverse it's not not always worked that way but i think a pattern that i identified and also in my own life was some sort of pattern that when you 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 can see and, and this is i mean it's still that's an interesting thing that Ooh, sometimes you, you, you find this truly horrible stories that are kind of objectively terrible in, in a sense that people being, I don't know, hurt and in ways that you think, wow, this person, it's going to be really difficult. And you see people going through things and then you, you think, wow, this is, I wasn't thinking they would do that. Or sometimes the other way around, you think, wow, this doesn't seem that, that difficult. It's something that is, I think they will go through it and actually things just go the way that, so I also acknowledge that, that there is something mysterious, right? I don't think there is a kind of silver bullet interpretation or a formula to, oh, do this. But a pattern I, 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 I think I identified over the years is that uh, there's something very powerful when we can reflect about our own context and, and see the things that were beyond what we could do. So in a sense, things that were done to us. Think of your example of a church context, right? 
and some people come and they're, they're, they are, they are, I think, yeah, truly heard thing by things that happen there, right? But a pattern that I always saw with people that move forward, so to speak, is that there was some sort of uh, agency that also took place. You come to a point that re you realize that you acknowledge the things of your own context, but there's always something that comes to the subject, that always that something that comes to the person even to respond. I'm not saying only kind of to being, not necessarily to be responsible or to be blamed or to be guilty of something that happened. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes this is the case. You're part of that and you're actually contributing to that pattern in the ways that actually you're blind to, right? Sometimes that happens. But in, in sometimes e even, it's very hard, okay? But e even sometimes with, with forgiveness, you come to realize that you must be, there must be a time that you become an agent and, and it is, a, it's the ball is in your, on your side now. I, I don't know. There seems to be in my mind when I think about that with fear trembling, I think, wow, this seems to be a way that God created us, right? We are agents. We are his image. There's a lot of power in things we do personally, but we live in a, in a social context, in, in a context that goes beyond ourselves. So, Yes, I would answer very briefly, but I, I know it's, there are more nuances there for sure. But this is a partner I identified as if, yeah, people, they come to a point and they think, okay, what about me now? What will I do with that? Will I be eternally resentful of what that, that pattern that happened? Will I become cynical or will I move forward? Maybe that, that step, what, what does that turn towards hope? And some sort of moving on. I don't know exactly what it is. I do believe this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit, really. But, but there is that point that comes to the person, even, even the, 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 the situation outside. Does that make sense, Francis? Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. 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 Welcome to the, to the red and green lights and this. Hi, can you see me? Oh, the camera's up by oh. can, can you hear you? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hello. Hello. All the way to Brazil. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, I wish I could go to Brazil. Um, but I don't know how to speak Portuguese, so that would be a problem. <laughs> You'll be fine. Survive. Um, just thinking about some of the people that I work with, and they would definitely say that reality is what you make it. <clears throat> and um, I just wondered if you had anything off the cuff that you would say back to this person to get them to start to think beyond, you know, sh showing them a pen. I mean, I would tend to just want to pick up a pencil and show them the pencil and say, okay, so this is just my you're saying that this is totally what I made, that this pencil doesn't exist outside my imagination or whatever. Um, I don't know if you've, uh, you've probably thought about this time, so maybe you can help me out here. Just some practical things that you could say to people to 
pause them to think about what they're really saying because it is a tremendously narcissistic thing to say. Yeah, sure. To say yes. that you make, you know, you make reality. That I, yeah. I am the agent of, the creator of what it, what it is. So. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for yeah. your question. I mean, yeah, in a sense, this is the, 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 the environment, the waters we're swimming. I think we, we let, we have less objectivists, perhaps, perhaps it's growing that, that movement, but that, that sort of cultural perspective. But we're navigating the waters of this more extreme subjectivist. Maybe part, part of the thing you can start affirming that. Well, you we can say, well, yeah, part, part of reality is all, you're right. Is or of what we make of it in this idea that whatever man called it, that was its name. This is part of the power that the creator has given us, right? We define reality and we live within it. I think there's something to be affirmed. It's always, I think when you can see something that is a bridge, I think this is good and true. Um, but I, I mean, with, with Lewis, if you read Surprised by Joy and even uh, his his works, his, I think this idea of two powerful things are pain and beauty. These are, in a sense, they they are they they might they 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 may function as wake up calls to a reality that transcend myself. But some 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 of us sometimes we lose control, and sometimes that go, comes through pain and suffering. And we realize that actually reality is not just a figment of my imagination or what I make of it or have control over it. No, it transcends me. And, uh, beauty does that as well. So you can point out and sometimes people cannot make sense of, wow, this is a beautiful experience. It could be through art or, or even, even, uh, yeah, I mean, acts of love and kindness, things that are external. Okay. This is, this is, these are very powerful. And for, for extremists, you can just, 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 just poke that pencil in that, that, that their, uh, in their hand and say, oh, this reality is just what you're making. Make it, make it nice now. I mean, don't do it unless you're very good friends, but you can actually, I mean, it's silly, but it's true, right? You cannot just make up, oh, I, I don't have pain now. <laughs> what do you do? If I poke you now, what do you do? Right? So it's a very simple, but it's 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 true. But I'd say pain, pain and beauty. Thank you. Hi, Josue again. Um, Hi, Ben. Oh. oh, there's. I almost disabled the technology just by standing here. <laughs> um, I think uh, something that. I've just read very, very lightly, not not in any depth, um, just some sort of pop neuroscience kind of kind of writing, uh, mostly about music and sort of what happens in the brain, what, what's going on in the brain when we listen to music or when we play music. And it seems to me that's an example of, you know, it's it's a it's a hard science. You're studying, you know, electro electric firings of neurons in the brain, you know. Um, which claims to be very, very objective in the sense that we are studying something that is scientifically true and verifiable and external to our, you know, <laughs> our imaginations and our feelings. And yet 
in its extreme form is very reductionistic about human consciousness. Basically, human consciousness, our awareness of anything at all, is just and nothing more than electrical firings of neurons in the brain. And yeah. so it ends up being completely self-defeating. Uh, actually, that your your perception of anything is 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 nothing more than electrical chemical events in your brain. So how do you how do you get beyond that? And so to me, it's it's just so um, interesting how seldom people who are truly subjectivists admit that it undermines any thought and any communication whatsoever. Like I can't I can't actually say anything to you that would mean what I want it to mean. Um, there's no connection between our minds. <laughs> My perception of you, I don't know if that's you, but it's but it's 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 all it's all that exists to me. So um yeah, I just I'm not really sure how to speak into that, although although I wanna say um it's that to not re- to not reduce all of human consciousness to just the the, mecha- the the sort of chemical electrical events in our brain, that may be the mechanism that God designed through which we perceive everything. It's true that we there's no such thing as perception that isn't filtered through our brain. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and yet there is a reality outside my brain mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which 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 in a sense is the step of faith. I mean, it's a step of faith that, 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 um, there is a reality that is, that I, the only way I can perceive it and make contact with it is through this thing we call our brains. Um, and yet it is actually external to my, to me. <laughs> it really is there. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but, but it's, but it's hard to have that kind of conversation. Um, Without, without kind of talk, talking about spiritual things and talking about, you know, to push back against the really reductionistic, just, just the materialistic claims. I don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or what. Yeah. Or, sure. Know. Sure. Sure. Thank you. This is a very important point. And I would, we have to read Schaefer's trilogy again. Because the whole, the whole point of Schaefer in this, his idea of the struggle of Mod, the modern person is this um, this tension between nature and freedom, right? Because uh, Schaefer identified already in the, in the modern uh, um, philosophy, for example, this idea that uh, um, you cannot really explain human freedom in in naturalistic terms, right? Because if you could reduce freedom to nature. Uh, that means that we don't have any freedom. Yeah. Right. So that, that, that's, that's the great point. How, or if you use more the contemporary language of hardware and software, right? Um, it, it is as if you want to reduce soft, the software by understanding the hardware. But, um, obviously the, some scientists, they are, they, they work and some, some neuroscientists work in order to, for that to happen. Obviously, the brain would be the hardware in that case, and the mind would be the software, right? So for some of these the, the scientists, they really hope that by understanding the hardware, the brain, they will figure out the mind, the, the thought, in a sense, right? But, and Schaefer pointed out that actually th- this would be impossible, 
because thought uh, is something that God gave us and freedom is something that God gave us. This is why, uh, for example, the in the language of the transhumanists, the, the language of the soul is absent. Is that there can be no soul. Everything that you have is, um, and this is the great hope of Harari, for example, and all the transhumanists, Ray Kurzweil, the idea that you actually, in the end, we will be able to figure out how the machine, our brains work and do the reverse engineering of the brain. And actually, uh, so they, they actually don't believe in freedom. They believe in reducing everything to nature, right? To, so, but so, so this is why I think one of the, the frontiers of uh, discussions of the day will be our anthropology, who we are as humans. It's back on the scene, right? The whole thing of, yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't need to go there, but the whole thing of AI and humanoids and, uh, maybe very soon claiming to be human. People have been talking about machine rights that will come very soon. Because if you don't have an idea of, of any, any, um, uh, something distinguished to identify humans as hu- something that transcends nature, so to speak, right? And everything's reduced to nature. Why not a very intelligent, uh, AI humanoid cannot be human, have the same rights that we have, right? So we'll see, we'll see these things coming. Uh, but yes, does it make sense? Yeah, I think that reduction yeah, of, really helpful, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. On the porch. Um, I have sway, it's Paul again. Um, I, uh, Hi. your quote about, um, C.S. Lewis, um, Conversion is extroversion. I'm, I'm sorry. I forget which book was that from. That it's he, uh... su- Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. Okay. Yes. Yeah, this is I... was, he, he talks about his, yeah, his conversion. His, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. I, I mm. vaguely remember that. That, that's really a, a good quote. It, it says a lot. Yeah. Thank yes, you. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. And especially in a context where I think we see a kind of very introverted Christianity, right? So, the, and, and again, that, I don't think Lewis kind of condemns introversion, but I think he just talks about this reality of uh, seeing what's out, outside of yourself and the idea of tasting goodness. And again, I think that's the theme that we discuss here. It's not, they are, they are, they are together. They are together. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you so much, Josue. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, really, really enjoyed the talk, and I think it's going to be uh, stimulating over the next few days as we have more conversations together. So, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. God bless you and your work. Thank you. Please, please, uh, please give. uh, Lily, a hug from everybody to know Lily here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will. Thank you very much, guys. It's a privilege just to have that talk and see you briefly. But it was, it was great. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank blessings you. on term. Yeah, uh, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.